contagious faith is one you just can't keep to yourself. You have to share it. It's infectious. It's going to spread to other people. My hope is that as the message of contagious faith gets to church members and whole congregations, that they'll all realize they have a part to play in spreading the good news of Christ, but they can do it in ways that fit them. Every one of us has a natural contagious faith style, and we want to help them discover it. I think these five contagious faith styles, the friendship building style, the selfless serving style, the story sharing style, the reason giving style, and the truth telling style, really flow naturally out of the pages of the Bible. Uh, when we open the pages of scripture, we see that they didn't all share their faith the same way. And we see biblical examples of all of these. We also see Jesus doing these. And what we do is just take those principles and apply them into our lives and say, how can we follow those models to reach the people in our world today? Well, welcome and good to see you. My name is Mark Middleberg and it's good to be back. I spent the day with a lot of you yesterday. I really am loving being kind of a you know, temporary part of your church and I just feel so welcomed. And I want to welcome those that are here just now for this service. Uh, this is going to be a continuation, as uh, Pastor David said, of, of what I did in the last service. So if you missed that, uh, it'll be online, I understand, and you'd be able to go back and watch some of that. Uh, and then it's going to continue tonight at 6 p.m. And I hope you'll all come back. I'm drawing a picture, and I don't really complete this picture until tonight and really show you where it all points. And so I hope you'll be there. And then we're also going to have a Q&A time, and you can ask questions you know, related to your faith, things that maybe make you question or doubt things, or maybe friends that have questions, uh, and best yet, bring friends that have doubts, objections, don't believe what you believe, or maybe sort of do, but aren't clear on it or whatever. I'd love to try to help. Um, and what I want to encourage all of us to do is to be lovers and seekers of truth. Uh, I don't know about you, I don't want to be like just some propaganda person who's, you know, trying to you know, defend something because I grew up with it or something I just, you know, it's kind of used to or something. I want to know what's real. And I, I have a couple of quotes here. Um, this surprises some people. That's exactly what the Bible says. Uh, back in uh, Zechariah 8, 19, the Bible says, therefore, love truth and peace. But, you know, love and pursue truth. We want to believe what, what is real. And then in uh, the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul says that people perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And one of my favorite quotes is the uh, French mathematician and philosopher, 17th century philosopher, Blaise Pascal. Brilliant man. He said, truth is so obscure. And I, by the way, does this sound like today? Uh, he says, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood is so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. So again, what I want to do is show, especially for a culture and a society that doesn't buy it when we just quote a Bible verse. We say, we know it's true because thus saith the Lord. They're going, how do I know that's the Lord? How do I know that's the truth? Uh, isn't that a Bible that has mistakes in it and myths in it and it's like, well, we have answers for that stuff. We'll talk about some of that tonight. But uh, in a culture where people you know, don't believe the Bible, but do believe science, do believe history, uh, do believe other things, I think we're wise to show that you know, those things point to the same truth that the Scripture points to. So that's kind of been my goal today. Uh, 20 Arrows of Truth. It's a 20-part sermon. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Some of you go, that sounds like a nightmare. Um, but no, I hope it's interesting to you, and I'm going to continue. As David said, I went through the first four, and that's what these four arrows represent, are the first four arguments I gave or pieces of evidence. And like I say, you can go back to those. There's also the books available where you can get more detail if you missed the first service. And I want to say for the folks at the campuses, um, we, we don't have books at the remote campuses, but if you come tonight at 6, we've got them here, uh, so those will be available as well. But just real quick recap, uh, 
The first uh, design or evidence I gave was based on design, that when we see design, whether it's through the microscope or through a telescope, wherever we see it, design points to a designer. Um, art doesn't happen without an artist. Paintings don't happen without painters. Uh, programs don't get written without a programmer. Design is all throughout the universe, and it points powerfully to a designer. Uh, and then reason number two, or argument number two, arrow number two, uh, says that fine-tuning in the universe points to an intentional fine-tuner. And what we mean by that is there's a whole bunch of areas that are calibrated to a razor's edge of precision. And I mean, like, had to be right, you know, clicked right where they are, or life wouldn't exist. And the odds of that happening are astronomically against chance. I mean, the idea that that could have happened by itself is just... That's a leap of faith that I can't take. When we see fine-tuning, there's got to be a fine-tuner. And I love this. Uh, an atheist uh, scientist, famous guy from a while back, named Sir uh, Fred Hoyle. He's the guy that actually coined the term the Big Bang. Um, and uh, he's just a famous scientist. He looked at the evidence on this one, and he's, he, he, he had to give credence to it. He, he wasn't a believer but he finally said, he goes, you know, when you look at the evidence for fine-tuning, you look at all this, he said, it's almost like someone was monkeying with the physics. And I look at that quote, and I go, you know, wherever there's monkeying, there's a monkeyer. And in this case, a loving, benevolent, powerful, wise one. Uh, another fun quote um, you know, we talked in the last time, uh, in fact, I'll get to this one, the Big Bang. Um, and I talked about how the Big Bang is not something you have to be afraid of as a Christian. It's a scientific description of what Genesis tells us, that out of nothing, God created everything. Uh, ex nihilo is what theologians have said for centuries. Well, that's a theological description of what the Big Bang says out of this little nothing point called the singularity. Boom, here's a universe. But I like uh, what Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland from uh, Talbot Seminary out in California, he said, you know, wherever there's a big bang, there's got to be a big banger somewhere. Uh, somewhere behind it, something caused this. Bangs don't happen on their own. And uh, you see the logic here? We're just trying to take what we can observe and go back and say, what's the best ex explanation for this? Now, some people in modern science will say, well, we'll only consider natural causes. And okay, you can wear those blinders if you want to. It's like a horse, you know, with the blinders. It's like, can't see anything over there. It must not exist. Well, when scientists, and a lot of modern science says this, they'll say that we will only consider natural causes. Well, they've already made a decision. You know what that's called? It's a presupposition. It's an anti-supernatural presupposition. You want another word for it? It's prejudice. It's, it's prejudging against the possibility that there's something outside of their blinders. And I just want to say, at least take the blinders off and consider it. You know, maybe after you look at it, you won't, you won't believe what we believe, but at least consider. I mean, where's the rule written somewhere that everything has to happen according to what we understand from nature? That's a very limited worldview. And the evidence points that there's something above and beyond nature. And as I showed you with the Big Bang, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Let me uh, jump to the, uh, that was number four. Uh, the, the, you know, origins of the universe point to a source outside of the universe, a non-physical, spiritual, eternal, because time itself began with the Big Bang. Well, then whatever the cause of that is, is outside of time and so forth. So, and then back to number three, that was about the information encoded in every cell of our bodies is mind-blowing information. It's like the best computer code ever written. And you go, okay, computer codes need a, an encoder. Someone has to write that code. Who wrote it? Well, we believe the evidence points to who the Bible says did it, a loving creator. So what I want to do now is continue, and uh, I'm going to get to history in a minute, 
But this one's more of a, like an experiential, observational, a little bit philosophical argument, but I think it's a really important one. And that is, let me draw my arrow here, that our sense of morality points to a moral lawgiver. Um, and this one, if you think about it, there, there's like, we have a conscience, there's this moral code that's kind of written into our awareness that is really hard to get away from. And, you know, I'll just raise my right hand and confess something to you. All my life, I've had this sense that there's a moral standard that is above me and better than me. And here's the confession. All my life, I've fallen short of that standard. Anyone relate? Anyone not relate? <laughs> It's a pretty good description of the human condition, isn't it? And by the way, I have my good days. You know, I'm not saying I always do everything wrong. Uh, I have my good days, my bad days. And with God's help, I think I'm heading the right direction. But I still fall short of a, a moral standard. And here's my question. If, you, if we all have that, why don't we just have a vote and get rid of it? You know, let's just party on the beach and relax and have fun. Well, you can't get rid of it. It's encoded into what it means to be a human being. My question again is, who encoded it? You know, a lot of people love to talk about the problem of evil. You know, if there's bad things in the world, there must not be a good God. I'd like to flip it on this one and talk about the problem of good. Where, does, where do the good things come from that human beings love to do and love to celebrate? You see acts of hero, heroism, if I could talk, um, you know, in, in the conflict in the Ukraine and people standing for truth and defending people and, and, and some brave leadership. And you go, where does that come from? The noble side of us, the good side of us, the heroic side of us. Well, I think there's an author of that who's a noble, heroic, good creator of humankind. And, you know, I don't know if you think about this. Some people say, well, bad thing happened, so I'm not going to believe in God anymore. Okay, you just jumped into a worldview that denies that bad things happen. You go, what do you mean? I go, because apart from the existence of God, you're in a world of atheism that doesn't believe in good or evil. And I can take you to all kinds of famous philosophers, going back to people like Bertrand Russell, famous philosopher in the last generation, uh, or current guys like Richard Dawkins, and they will tell you, in fact, I, I just looked up a famous quote uh, right before the service. Here's Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist from Oxford that I quoted earlier and talked about. He said, the universe that we live in, the, the universe we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, we already talked about that, uh, no purpose, and then get this, no evil and no good. Nothing but, here's his key phrase, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So that's the worldview of atheism. And, and I don't see any atheists arguing with this. We live in a world of blind, pitiless indifference. The, the, the you know, cosmos doesn't care about you. And you say, yeah, but bad things happen. It's like survival of the fittest, baby. You know? Sorry, stuff happens. Uh, you go, yeah, but someone did something wrong. There is no good or evil. They just said it. Good and evil are concepts that flow out of a good God. If there is no God, there's just survival of the fittest. There's just do what you got to do to survive, to, to reproduce, to keep the, the race going. But there's no right or wrong. Here's an interesting story. The famous C.S. Lewis, the, he's a Christian author, the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Narnia, all that. That guy was an atheist. Famous, brilliant, you know, literature professor. He, he taught at, uh, at um, Oxford. He was an atheist. And he said, the reason I couldn't believe in God was because of all the evil in the world. Seemed simple. And he said, then I realized it was too simple. Because how could I complain about evil in the world when I can't define evil? And how do I know something's evil unless I have a notion of something good? And how can there be good if there's no source of good, if there's no God? He said, you, you don't have a notion of what a crooked line is unless you know what a straight line is. 
There's got to be some standard. And he said, I began to realize that my complaining about evil was betraying the fact that I knew there was a good standard, which means there has to be a God, a moral lawgiver behind it. And this brilliant Oxford professor reached a point where he said, it's, you know, this problem of evil that took me away from God made me realize there must be a God. And he gave his life to Christ and became one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith. And he talks about this very argument. In fact, probably the best treatment of this argument I've ever read is in C.S. Lewis's famous book, uh, Mere Christianity. And you can read more about it. But, you know, when, when an atheist says there is no good or evil, do you realize they're saying someone murders your father, you, it's unfortunate and it's sad and murdering fathers isn't your preference, but, you know, you can't really say it's wrong. And just one more thing on this, you know, that's the argument the Nazis used. Um, because they're murdering all kinds of people, especially the Jewish race, and probably responsible for directly murdering about 11 million people. And then the war ends and the tri you know, trial's happening in Nuremberg. And Nazis tried to, you know, some of the surviving commanders tried to make this very argument. And they said, who are you to come in from your nation and your society, your culture, and to judge ours? Every culture decides for itself what's right or wrong. And for us, we decided that we wanted certain races to do better. And because we think some are superior and therefore we're going to help, help evolution. That was their view. We're helping further evolution. We're doing it more quickly. And that was their argument. And the argument back, and the argument that won, is, you know what? Societies don't ultimately get decide, to decide what's right or wrong. There is a higher law that goes over societies. And what you did was wrong, it was murder, and you are culpable. And they hung these people for their crimes. Right? Well, I'm talking about that higher law. Where does a, a higher law come from that supersedes human opinion and society? I think there's a moral lawgiver who's written it in our hearts and made us aware that there is this higher law, and that points to a higher source of that law. So that's reason number five. Now I'm going to turn more to some historical kinds of arguments. Reason number six. Uh, get my arrow up here. And I want to talk about the Bible. Now, this is where skeptics get defensive because they're going, well, you're just going to tell me the Bible's the Word of God and I have to accept it. No, I'm going to give you reasons that you should trust the Bible. Evidence for it being what it claims to be. And one of the, this is just an interesting one. Um, the Bible is a uniquely consistent religious book. Um, you know, we, we call the Bible a book, but really it's not a book. It's 66 books bound together. To, you know, it's like a library of books all put together. And what's fascinating is it was written over about a span of about 1,500 years by multiple authors in multiple languages, in multiple cultures, over different centuries. And yet there's a united message of morality, of good and evil, of the story about God and the coming Messiah. Uh, the ultimate message in the Bible is what we sang about in the last song, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and, and the Savior came and paid the penalty on the cross for our sins. His shed blood is for us. He, he, Jesus came and said, I'm giving my life as a ransom, as a payment for you. Well, that's, that, I believe, is the, the consistent message throughout Scripture. But how does a, 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 a series of books written by so many diverse people and cultures and languages over a millennia and a half have a consistent message? And I think Norman Geisler was right, a, a philosopher who looked at it and said, because there isn't multiple authors, ultimately they're all inspired by one author, the Holy Spirit. And I think that's true. And it's easy to say this and, and have people go, I don't know about that. Well, read it. And the more you read and you, you see how the, the message lines up and aligns and ultimately points to this suffering Messiah who paid the penalty for us, it's mind-blowing. 
but you have to dive into it. You have to read it and study it to really see it. Uh, reason number seven. The Bible is a uniquely historical religious book. In other words, the Bible is not just a bunch of stories. The, what makes Christianity unique and the Bible unique is that the stories are rooted in history, and really, it really matters that these things happen. Uh, in other words, this isn't just like some mythology. And let me contrast this to some other religions, because you know, people love to say, well, all the religions teach the same thing, and they just use different names from God. No, all the religions teach different things, and they contradict each other. And there's some superficial similarities, but there are fundamental differences. Years ago, when I was still back in Chicago, I started a ministry to study this kind of stuff at our church, and we would take groups of people, and we'd, I remember we'd get like two buses and fill them up. We have like 100 people. We'd go visit places. We'd arrange this ahead of time, but we wanted firsthand experience in like a Hindu temple and a Buddhist temple and in a mosque and, and different places. I remember when we went in the Hindu temple, and we went, and again, they, they're welcoming us. They're, they're like proud to show us their beautiful building. They're very nice people. And I remember this young Hindu man comes and greets our group and uh, welcomes us. And he said, I'm so excited to take you through our temple. But before I do, I just got to tell you something. It's one of the things I'm just so proud of as a Hindu. And we said, okay, what's that? And he said, our religion is the oldest religion in the world. And then, and then what he said next really caught my attention. He said, in fact, our religion is so old, we don't even know where it came from. <laughs> like, sign me up, right? <laughs> is that something to be excited about? Um, you go in a restaurant and the waitress brings you something and says, here, do you want to eat this? And you go, I don't know, what is it? She goes, I don't know, I found it. It's like, I don't know where it came from. I don't want to eat it. Like, I, I like to know where things came from, right? And uh, again, I don't mean any disrespect, but, and this, but this guy found it exciting that they didn't know where their religion came from. I like one that's rooted in history. Um, there's other religions. We, I mentioned we went to a mosque. They try to root it in history, but they make, and I told the imam this, I mean, they make big historical mistakes, because they like to talk about a Jesus who never died on the cross. Well, that's a historical fact that he died on the cross. But they say, no, no, no. You go, how do you know? Well, because Muhammad wrote, you know, revealed that Jesus never died on the cross. Yeah, but Muhammad came 600 years later. You're, you're going to take a, the word of a guy talking to an angel in a cave 600 years later and say, that's, that's the history I'm going with. I would rather talk to the eyewitnesses who wrote the Gospels 600 years before that. So you see where I'm going with this? I want something rooted in real history that really happened. And that's what we have with the Bible and especially the, the record of Jesus. There's multiple accounts, four main biographies. There's ancient creeds. There's, there's all kinds of early writings as well as secular writings that confirm the story about Jesus. And some of them are negative. Um, there are Jewish writings that speak about Jesus is in a condemning way, but in a way that affirms what he said and claimed. In other words, they didn't like it, but they affirmed the truth of what he said. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons to look at this and say, the Bible's historical and Christianity has a historical base like these other religions don't have. And it's one of the reasons I can be confident, you can be confident, I think, to, to trust in that historical record of a Messiah who did incredible things, which I'm going to get to. Reason number eight. The Bible is a uniquely preserved work of antiquity. This is a big deal. Um, you, you may have talked to people who go, look, I can't believe the Bible because it's been retranslated so many times that you can't even know what it's said anymore. It's like the, the message has been lost generations ago. And then sometimes they'll give you an illustration. They'll say, it's like that uh, game you play with kids, the uh, children's game of telephone. Do you, you, you remember this? Where you get a circle of kids and you whisper a message into the first kid's ear and then he's supposed to whisper it. And, and you see what it 
comes around to, you know, the first message might say, you're my best friend, and then it gets whispered around. Uh, you know, by the time it comes back around, it might be you're a beastly fiend. You know, you just, it, it gets corrupted, right? And so they say, that's what we have with the Bible. It, it's corrupting because it got passed person to person so many times. Who knows what the original said? And that's, a, that's kind of a nice cliched argument for people that want to avoid what the Bible says. But when you press them on it, you go, you know that's not how we got the Bible, right? And they go, no, I think that's pretty accurate. And sometimes I've really pushed people to say, well, tell me exactly, like, who, who was whispering it to who? They go, well, you know, the, the original thing got written down by somebody back, way back when, and then it got translated. And then if they, have, if they know a little bit of history on it, they'll go, you know, that guy, Jerome, he, he translated it into the Latin Vulgate. And so it went from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And then Martin Luther got a hold of it. And he, put the, he took this Latin thing, put it into German. And then some king named James uh, got a hold of it. And he put it into some weird Elizabethan English that we can't understand. And, and he did that. And then uh, some guy named New International, um, <laughs> or New American Standard, some guy, uh, he took that old King James and, and changed it again, and so now we have this modern stuff, but who knows what got lost in all the... I'm going, that's not how we got our Bible. Um, it, I mean, if you want to force the game of, of, of telephone, first of all, they weren't kids. They were people willing to die for the message, and they didn't go person to person. They kept going back to the source. So it's like me telling each person what the message was. That's a whole different picture. And here's what I mean. When Jerome translates the Bible, he goes back to the Greek and Hebrew original. When Martin Luther does the German translation, he looks at Jerome's stuff and learns from it, but he goes back to the original languages. When the King James Committee in 1611 in England did the King James Version, they went back to the original, and they weren't trying to put it in fancy, you know, poetic language. That's just how they talked. So it was the vernacular of the day, and they did that. Same with the, you know, New International Version and the English ESV and all these. They're going back to the original, and it actually is getting stronger because we keep digging up more manuscripts and getting more information, and we're translating it from better and wider spans of manuscripts. So the newer translations are the most accurate. So, so much for that argument, right? The other half of this I want to say is, when, when we say uniquely preserved work of antiquity, a lot of people don't realize this, but with ancient writings, they were written down on parchments or whatever materials they would use originally. And they knew even when they wrote them, these will only last so long. And sure enough, they're right, because we don't have the originals, what they call the autographs, of any ancient writings. I don't mean just the Bible. I mean any ancient writings. So what they knew early on is we're going to write these, but then we got to start making copies so that we preserve this. This is before the printing press, right? So they would make very careful copies and then keep these and keep perpetuating it so that we could count on it. And so anyone with any kind of ancient literature has to go back to the earliest copies. And the earlier, the better. And the more of them you have, the better as well, because then you can confirm you know, how, from multiple sources what the original probably said. But here's the big difference. When I talk about the Bible being uniquely preserved, here's the difference. Do you know that most ancient writings, let's take Plato, for example, the, philosopher, the Greek philosopher. Plato was originally written, and you know what, I'm going to go up here. Like, this is like a time scale. Sorry for the camera people. Can they come over here for the remote? Um, here's the original. Plato right, writes what he writes. Then that dissolves into dust over time, but there's a copy and there's copies, and there's copies. The only thing is, on the time scale, you have the original that's gone, and then let's make these century marks. Well, guess what? The earliest copy of Plato, I'm going to run into my chart, is like seven or eight centuries later. That's our earliest copy that we have today. And guess how many copies we have? About seven or eight. 
But they're considered good copies. So, you know, ancient literature scholars say, we've got some good manuscripts. We're confident we have what Plato wrote, even though it's based on seven or eight copies and seven or eight centuries. Okay? That is typical. Now, there are some that have a few more and some that are a little earlier. There's other ones where they have less copies, and sometimes it's a thousand years out before the earliest preserved copy, and they base everything we know on that. Let me contrast that to the, to the New Testament. The New Testament, you have the writings, and there's multiple authors, but it's all within a tight time span here. They wrote down the original, and yes, just like other ancient literature, that's dissolved to dust. But thankfully, people were making copies and multiple copies, and we have different fragments and so on. Here's the difference. Plato, original, first copy, 800 years later, got eight copies. The New Testament, original, here's the first copy. Now, see, some of you weren't watching closely enough. Let me, let me go back and do that again. Original, first copy. We have the Rylands, John Rylands Papyra, or Rylands Papyra of the Gospel of John. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John found all the way over in Egypt, a really good copy of a few verses from John. And scholars say it's probably 30 years or so, 30, 40 years, maybe 25 years from the writing of John, the first copy. That in, in ancient literature, that's like immediate. And then we have other copies, other fragments, other collections, and so forth. And we've got them all across span, but we're not going centuries. We're going a couple decades, three decades. We got copies, and we got all these copies, and we don't have seven or eight like Plato. Guess how many we have for the New Testament in Greek alone? Over 5,800 copies. And then you go to other languages, and we have another like 20,000 copies. And we even have information from other, you know, non-Christian writings that confirm these things. We have overwhelming evidence. And as Daniel Wallace, a scholar of this stuff who goes around taking pictures and preserving records of these manuscripts, puts it, he's a professor at Dallas Seminary, he says, when it comes to the New Testament record, we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of historical documents that have shown us that we have a well-preserved record of what was written. So this idea that you can't trust it has all been copied, it's just nonsense. It's, 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 a, it's a nice story for someone that doesn't want to accept it. But we have really good reasons to believe it, and the Bible you hold in your hand is a really reliable record of the original. And one more thing, uh, there's an honesty to it because there are some words where they don't quite know how to translate them. Or there are some places where there's question, like, was this in the earliest manuscripts or not? And, and it's not hidden. If you read your Bible and look at the footnotes or look at the side notes, you'll notice they don't hide this. They'll say some manuscripts, or sometimes they'll even say the best manuscripts, do not include these verses, or do not include... And it's rare. I mean, it's rare in the sense that there's very few really disputed passages, but there's a, a few. And even that, it doesn't really question any major doctrine or historical event. It's just like, okay, well, even if... Whether it's there or not, it's recorded somewhere else anyway. We know what happened. So I just wanted... To, I, I took a little extra time in that one just to say, we have, you can be confident in the historical record written down and, and in what that historical record points to about Jesus and his mission and his acts, his miracles and so on. And I'm going to go on to keep going on that to give you other reasons. Reason number nine says archaeology shows that the Bible is a powerfully verified book. It's one thing to, to write it down, and it's great to have historical documents and so on. But there's all kinds of other evidence that reinforces the, the record and what it claims. And this stuff, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this. It's, and I, I'm learning this stuff all the time. But, and I had the privilege of going to Israel and finding out, you know, seeing these places. 
saying, look, look at this, they dug up David's temple. You know, look at this, you know, here's where this event happened, here's where this event happened. And there's, yeah, if you go, they'll say, there's some dispute, it was either here or here. But it happened, and you know, there's good reason, there's arguments for both of these, we're not sure which, but it happened. Um, let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, I mentioned David's temple. Um, uh, just about a decade or so, maybe maybe a little longer ago, they were building a trying to build a water park in Jerusalem, and they have the little bulldozer pushing dirt around. There, all of a sudden, it falls through like a, a ceiling that it was over, and falls at one floor down. Well, in Jerusalem, when that happens, that's bad news for your water park. Uh, construction stops, call in the archaeologists, like, what did he fall into? Because they're constantly finding this stuff. Well, guess what, what he fell into? He, he fell into the burial room where they had the box with, you know, the, the bone box thing, actuary deal, and they, they open it up and they look, what is it? Well, there was an inscription. It was the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest, who, you know, tried Jesus. Like, that guy. You go, wow, that's quite a find. It is. And that's just one of so many examples. And what's so funny is people try to bet against the Bible. Uh, I'll give you an Old Testament example. Critics would say, uh, this, there's an Old Testament fiction called the Hittites. These people called the Hittites. They never existed. You know, how do you know? Because we don't have any secular history or archaeology that proves it. So we know the Bible writers were making it up. So they bet against the Bible and then you know what happens. They keep digging, and they go, oh, whoop, here are the Hittites. Um, and all of a sudden, they, we've got all kinds of archaeological evidence and, and you know, the, the, where they lived and civilization and pottery and all this. It's like Hittites are well-established. Oops, they got it wrong on that one. But this other idea, this Jericho idea, that's crazy. Well, oops, here's Jericho. And how'd these bricks fall down? The wall seems to have fallen in a really funny way. Oh, okay, who knows? Well... Maybe it's what the Bible says about the wall of Jericho, but we have archaeological evidence now. Uh, what about this Sodom and Gomorrah thing? Is that some kind of anti-gay literature? What's the deal with this? Oops, here's Sodom. They found Sodom, and guess what? It has layers of ash that the archaeologists said anywhere from inches to feet deep, multiple feet deep of ash over the city. What might have happened? The Bible says it burned. Maybe the Bible's right. Oops, they got it right again. Then they said, you know, this guy Pilate, supposedly the uh, you know, leader there in Jerusalem who tried Jesus, he never existed. How do you know? No evidence. Oops, they found the Pilate stone where he it has his name and inscription where he served. And it was found right where he served. Oops, okay, the Bible got lucky again. Well, how many times are we going to keep betting against the Bible? I don't know about you, I quit a long time ago. Um, and again, there's still questions and there's still things that don't all fit like a nice puzzle. But the further we go, the more evidence there is from archaeology that it con confirms what the Bible says. And I'll even go back over 100 years ago. There was a, a guy named Sir William Ramsey who was a, I think he was a Cambridge scholar and he was an agnostic. And he said, I don't believe, you know, this God thing doesn't make sense. And the Bible's full of holes. And Luke in particular, he said, made a mistake because he, he put all these specific times and dates in his writings. You know, Luke wrote two books, right? The, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And if you're going to make up fiction, you don't give real times and places and names because that's easy to disprove. So said Sir William Ramsey. So then he began to dig. And he spent the next 30 years digging and confirming over and over and over that Luke was right and made sense. And by the end, two things happened. Sir William Ramsey declared Luke a first-rate historian that got it right. And he secondly declared, I'm now a follower of Christ because this stuff is true. So archaeology, and again, we could go on and on, but I'll move on. Uh, reason number 10. The Bible is a uniquely honest book. And here's what I mean by that. It, it, it tells the truth even when it's not pretty. 
Now, you know, some people love to say, you know, Christianity is like a fairy tale. You know, people make it up to make them feel better about life. You know, really? Do you really make up a story where we're all sinners that are condemned by our, for our sin? Do you really put hell in there? It's like, it seems like the Bible's an honest book that wants to tell us things uh, even when they challenge what we wish were true. And more than that, it doesn't tell like fairy tale stories about, um, you know, like all of its leaders just lived these perfect lives. They were all noble. They were all beautiful. The more you read the Bible, you're going, man, we are a messed up race, aren't we? I mean, Noah, the hero, you know, who built this book, I mean, he, he messed up morally. And you read about it, you're going, whoa, I, this Bible's rated PG-13 here. This is, you know, whoa. What about David? You know, the man after God's heart, King David, wonderful, the guy that killed Goliath, great guy. What about that deal with Bathsheba? Yeah, you know, he sees this woman off the top, he's up on his roof, and he ends up, you know, seducing her and killing her husband. It's like, whoa, this is bad. And it was, but here's, here's my point. When historians look for marks of truth in writings, they look for, it's called the criterion of embarrassment. They look for someone willing to tell the truth even when it embarrasses their people or even themselves. And a lot of what we know about David's sin is because David wrote it. Read Psalm 51, his uh, confession psalm, where he talks about how badly he messed up and how he's repentant of it. But he tells the truth about his sin. And go to the New Testament. You know, the Bible doesn't hide that one of Jesus' 12 disciples betrayed him. And the other one, one of the lead disciples named Peter, you know, denied him. And on and on. And, and, and Peter later, you know, he, first he denies him, and later he's like legalistic, and Paul has to confront him. It's like, this is a very truthful book. And yet it ultimately points to the truth that we are sinners who need a Savior and have a Savior, and we can have forgiveness. So it's ultimately good news, but it tells the truth along the way. Let me see here. I think I'll do this one. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do two more, and then I'm going to end and then finish tonight. But uh, reason number 11 says that miracles point to the prophets, apostles, and Jesus as messengers of God. But I want to focus, I mean, there's lots of miracles throughout Scripture, but I want to focus on Jesus for a minute. One of the things that caused crowds to follow Jesus and be so taken by him and so enamored by him and so, because he did miracles in front of eyewitnesses in broad daylight, did them inside, did them outside, uh, and not, little, not like card trick stuff. I mean, healing lepers and uh, casting out demons and, and freeing people in ways that were just so obviously beyond normal anything. Uh, and he even raised people from the dead like Lazarus. And here's what's interesting about Jesus' miracles. His critics who wanted to destroy him, wanted, ultimately did crucify him, they're following him around for three years looking for fake stuff. I mean, if these were magic tricks, they would have seen the wires. And this is the stuff they were watching for. They're, they're looking for any mistake, any flaw, anything fake. And what do they say about his miracles? His critics never denied him. What they did is tried to catch him on technicalities. Uh, the day he's in a synagogue, and there's a man in the front row with a withered hand. Remember that? And they're watching because they're going, according to their rules, this wasn't really biblical rules, but their rules, you shouldn't heal someone on the Sabbath because that's a no-no, according to them. Jesus knows all that, but he sees someone he has compassion. He, he does something in the man's hand. Boom, it's back to normal. Instead of these hard-hearted religious leaders and, and critics of Jesus, instead of them saying, praise God, he must be from God, they're mad because he did it on the wrong day. But what if they just admitted? They said, you healed the man on the Sabbath, that's bad. Just focus on the first part of that. You healed the man. They didn't argue with it because they knew it had happened. It was a miracle right in front of their eyes. 
They didn't argue with the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead days after he had died. They admitted that. They just didn't like it. Well, when your critics are admitting you did something, you know, thank them for the compliment. And they can try on the technicality. The technicalities didn't work. But they acknowledged the miracles. And Jesus was a miracle worker. In, in, in the, and these aren't legends that got made up later. These are from the original accounts. The people that walked and talked with him said, he did this. He did it for me, or he did it for this woman. He did it for this guy. And the question is, where did Jesus get this power? And for anyone willing to listen and pay attention and be open, you say, a guy that can do miracles, and ultimately the miracle of raising from the dead three days after the crucifixion, which we'll talk about tonight, ultimately, like, that's the kind of guy I want to follow. Uh, not someone that does magic tricks, someone who can, has power beyond us. And that's what Jesus did. And Jesus pointed to it as evidence. By the way, Jesus was an apologist, by the way. He said, if, even if you don't believe my words, look at my works. And what he was pointing to is his miraculous activity. I'm healing people. I'm, I'm raising people from the dead. The lepers are, are whole again. The, the blind see. He goes, that's evidence that I am who I claim to be, that I am the Son of God. And that's why so many people believed him and followed him. Uh, last one I want to hit for today. Fulfilled prophecies. Point to the uh, Bible as a divinely inspired book and Jesus as the Messiah. Friends, these are amazing. These are not murky like Nostradamus kinds of things, then a great power will clash with another power and, you know, like... Ooh, you know, that's happening now. Um, these are much more specific. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I'll just give you a few examples. There's whole books written on these. But uh, these are things that were recorded. We know they were centuries ahead of time, and they came to pass just the way they were predicted. Uh, this includes, for instance, where Jesus, where the Messiah would be born. And you go to Malachi, and it talks about, you know, uh, the time would come when he, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come, and he would be born in this little town called Bethlehem. You go, how do you know that? By the way, that was about 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, how did he know that? By the way, if you're going <clears> to <throat> guess, you know, like you're, there's this Messiah coming, where, let's say he's coming to the United States, where will he be born? Well, I'm going to say... I'm not going to say Hinton. That's too small, right? I'm going to say New York, Chicago, Houston, L.A. I'm going to at least hedge my bets and pick a big city. Well, the prophecies didn't say he's coming to Jerusalem. You know, that's a big, that's probably, my odds are good on that. No, they picked a tiny little village named Bethlehem. Even the prophecy, when you read it, it says, it's, even though you're small among the villages, to you will come that one. 400 years ahead of time. So let's go back a little further. Um, let's go 700 years back. Read Isaiah 53. 700 years, seven centuries before the coming of the Messiah, predicted that he would be a suffering Messiah who would bear our iniquities as he was suffered. And it even uses this term. It says he will be pierced for our iniquities. And I imagine Isaiah writing it, and you know, he's, he's being led by the Holy Spirit, what to write. He's predicting this, this suffering Messiah will be pierced for our iniquities. I imagine him putting his pen down going, what does that mean? Like, did I get it right? Okay. And he, he leaves it there, pierced for our iniquities. You know why this is so extraordinary? Not just because it was 700 years ago, or years prior to Jesus, but because it was like three or four centuries before crucifixion had been invented. So it wasn't like Isaiah seeing people being crucified. It was like, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. Pierced for our iniquity. No, he is like, this doesn't even make sense. But I sense this is what the Holy Spirit's leading me to write. He writes it 700 years later, Jesus is pierced for our iniquities. Nails right through his wrists and, and feet. And get this, let's go back 300 years further. 
the writings of David in the Psalms, Psalm 22, the very Psalm Jesus calls everyone's attention to from the cross as he's pierced, right? He's up there on the cross. He says, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? He was not only saying something that he was sensing, you know, this rift right then as he was bearing our sins, he was also calling their attention to a psalm. This is the way they would often do it, is they would just read the first, cite the first line to call someone's attention to that passage. This afternoon, read Psalm 22. It's a detailed description of what happened to the Messiah on the cross, written by David a thousand years before it happened. It's where it talks about them dividing the, his garments and, you know, wagering over those. And there's a bunch of details in there. But the most astounding one is that David wrote, his hands and his feet would be pierced. Now we're about 500, 600 years before crucifixion had been invented. And he writes that his hands and his feet would be pierced. How do you account for that? And by the way, there's a whole bunch more. I mean, there's, like I say, there's like 56 major prophecies. And then people do the mathematical odds against it. They're about like the fine-tuning arguments. It's like, this stuff doesn't happen on its own. There was a divine hand over all of these things. And of course, Jesus came for the purpose of laying down my life as a ransom, he said, to die for us. So the truth of the gospel was predicted hundreds of years ahead of time in great detail. So I'm, well, I'm going to wrap up here, and uh, let me just go real quick. Just to mention again, if you want more details, I encourage you, the book on the left, Confident Faith, is the one where I, I really go into all this with much more detail. The book on the right is related to challenges we get uh, to our faith, and it was based on a national survey I did of uh, all around the country and asked, what are the questions you hope people won't ask you about your faith as a Christian? These are the top 10 objections we're afraid of. And I wrote chapters on each of those. Uh, those are out back. If you're at the satellite campuses, come tonight. And we've got, I think we've got plenty of books. And you can pick those up. They're having a sale back there, so check it out. But I just want to urge you, uh, as you walk out today, if you're a follower of Christ, hold your head up. Don't, don't be cocky. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Be thankful that what we believe is based on reality. It's true. The book, I said earlier, the book of nature points to the same thing as the book of Revelation. Well, so is the book of history and the book of good philosophy and the book of archaeology and the book of miracles. All, all these things point back to the reality that we follow a Savior who, who is true and who loves us and who cares about us and who came to pay the penalty for us like we sang about earlier. And he wants to be your Savior. So, God bless. I'll see you back tonight with your friends, 6 o'clock. God bless. All right. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>